If you don't have a Bible, we've got bookshelves there in the back. Feel free to go ahead and grab one. Um, that, is for, that is for you. And we want you, when you come each week, to, to open up God's Word and study along with us. First Peter chapter 2 is where we'll be. And while you're turning there, I will let you know that we have a crisis of commitment. What I mean by that is, how often do you, do you use the phrase, when you're scheduling an appointment or you're making um, a plan for someone, you'll say this, just go ahead and pencil me in. Right? We don't say write it in ink. We don't say write it down in black permanent marker. We say pencil it in because we want to be able to erase it. We, we want the, the freedom, the ability to, to, to move on from that if, if we so desire. I, I, was in col- I did college ministry for 14 years, and we would have these different ministry events, and we would put these events on Facebook, and we would invite people to them, and you had the option to say yes, no, or maybe. And what would happen every single time We'd have about 12 yeses, we'd have about five noes, and we have about 85 maybes. You see, students, what they would do is they, they would wait till the last minute to commit because they wanted to keep their options open. If something better came along, they wanted to be able to, to, to go and, and be able to, to do that. Or maybe you're in a conversation with somebody, you're texting back and forth, and, and you ask them, hey, we'll be there, and then it goes blank, like they ghost you, and you're like, just, just waiting on a response. Commitment is hard to come by these days. We live in a day and age of seven-day free trials, money-back guarantees. You know, when, when we book a vacation, the first thing we look for is we want to look at the cancellation policy. Am I going to be able to get, to get out of this if I want to? And we all know that, that pit in our stomach, that, that feeling of, of when we go to purchase something that's non-refundable. We're like, all right, here we go. Take a deep breath. Like, we're doing it. I think this crisis of commitment shows up most noticeably in our relationships. We love the idea of commitment, but when push comes to shove, we're out. One of the longest running and most popular reality TV shows is The Bachelor. The whole premise of the show is built on the idea of commitment, that that these people will eventually get married. Well, if that's what their whole show is about, well, what's their track record of commitment? In 25 seasons of The Bachelor and 17 seasons of The Bachelorette, of of 42 possible relationships, only 17 of those are still together. Now, I don't need a show of hands of how many of you watch The Bachelor. I'm afraid I'd be disappointed. But maybe, just maybe, a TV show isn't the best way to find true love. Just throwing it out there. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 1960, the average age of a first marriage was 20 years old for women and 22 years old for men. In 2020, that increased to 28 years old for women and 30 for men. So why is that? Well, I think there are several factors that go into this, and we could spend all day talking about those. And I also want to emphasize that the Apostle Paul says that it's actually better to remain single, and, and there are people who live uh, fulfilled, uh, faithful lives as single people, but for people who desire to be, to be married, what we hear so often today is this, I want to try it before I buy it. Like, like that's the mantra, that's the rallying cry uh, of our culture today. And we see more and more couples cohabitate and move in together before they get married because they think this is how I will know if this person's going to be a good fit for marriage. I want to try it before I buy it. I've had, I've had uh, young couples say to me, 
I, I really want to figure out if we're going to be sexually compatible. Now, my, my response to that is, if you are a man and she is a woman, you're going to be sexually compatible. That's the way that God created us to be. You don't need to, you don't need to try and find out. You might think that that cohabitation would, would actually lead to more marriages. You might think that because the idea is, I really want to make sure that this is the right person for me. But research shows that that doesn't happen. Today, marriage rates are at an all-time historic low. In 1990, the, the marriage rate was 9.8 marriages per 1,000 people. In 2019, that dropped to 6.1 marriages per 1,000 people. A Pew Research study found that married adults, listen, have significantly higher levels of relationship satisfaction and trust than those couples who are just living together but remain unmarried. See, it turns out that commitment really matters. Commitment makes a difference. And in a world where commitment is lacking, the Apostle Peter tells us that you as exiles are called to be different. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. And, and as exiles, as people who belong to God, we are a, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, as we looked at last week, we are called to a radical commitment rooted in the example of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So as exiles, we're going to make these commitments. As, as a radical people, following in the way of Jesus, first, here's our commitment. I will avoid the temporary pleasures of sin because, because it destroys Peter says these sinful desires, they wage war against your soul. So what, what's that mean? Well, sin by nature is destructive. Sin promises freedom, but it delivers bondage. And what makes sin so attractive is that the effects of sin are not usually immediately obvious. Sin provides a sort of instant gratification, doesn't it? At first, it, it, it's, it's pleasurable, it's, it's enjoyable. The white lie gets you off the hook. Think no harm, no foul. The, the petty theft, the, the cutting corners gives you a little bit of extra cash. The passing glance, it, it, it fuels and feeds your desire. The indulging pur purchase masks your insecurity. See, we, we think we can get a handle on it, but the problem is we can't manage sin. If, if it's not confronted and if it's not dealt with, it overtakes you. James says that, that when sin is fully conceived, it gives birth to death. See, that, that's the problem. The, the problem is, is, is the white lie ends up leading to a secret life that wrecks your marriage. The petty theft ends up leading to embezzlement that costs you your job. The passing glance turns into an affair. The indulgent purchase turns into thousands of dollars of credit card debt. The reality is, sin takes you farther than you want to go, it keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. But as exiles, we're called to be different. And so we avoid sin because we have a new identity. Remember, we are a royal priesthood. 
We're, we're, a, we're a holy nation. We're, we're God's special possession. But it doesn't just stop with avoiding sin. That, that's one side of the coin. We also pursue what is good. See, the second commitment of an exile is I will pursue what is good because it impacts my witness. It's not just avoiding sin for, for my own sake, for my own holiness, but I also will live and pursue a good life, a righteous life, because it has an impact on others. Notice the way that, that Peter phrases this. He doesn't say right here, hey, first you have to convince people to believe the way that you believe. What he says is, we're going to show them what we believe by how we behave. We're going to live honorably. We're going to live righteously. Now listen, hear me, I believe that there are times where we need to go forth and we need to preach and proclaim boldly the name of Jesus, that we need to witness, that we need to, to share our faith. But so often, especially in our world today, we have to earn credibility by treating people with love, by treating people with respect, and treating people with grace. We have to do that before we will ever earn a right to be heard by them. We need to show people what we believe by how we behave. We need to build bridges across to, to skeptical people so that we can share with them and show with them the love of Jesus. In other words, before I tell you what I believe, first I want to show you how I love by how I live. And I believe, especially in our world today, this is so important for us as Christians. Peter has this, this confidence, this, this real confidence to pursue what is good, to, to live boldly, to live righteously. The reality is, in, in our world today, too often as Christians, we are more known by what we're against than, than by what we're for. And I just want to let you know where we're going as, as we go into 2022. Next year, we're really going to lean in and we're going to press into this idea of what we are for as a church and the difference we can make in our community and in our world. Peter writes that though they accuse you of doing wrong, can I just stop and ask, has that ever happened to you? Have, have your beliefs ever been mischaracterized by others? Have you ever been criticized for your faith? You have to understand that Christians in the first century were very misunderstood. Christians in the first century were thought to be um, superstitious. They were thought to be incestuous. They were thought to be cannibals. I'm not kidding. See, they were thought to be superstitious because Christians believed in miracles. They, they believed in healing. They believed that God worked in the world, and supremely they believed that Jesus raised from the dead. And so people around them thought, thought that they were magicians, and they thought that Jesus was the chief magician. People also, also thought that, that Christians were incestuous because they had these things called love feasts, these agape feasts. And who do you think they invited to these love feasts? Their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so people on the outside are going, you're having these love feasts and your brothers and sisters are coming to this? Like, what's going on? This is weird. This is really odd. And then they thought that Christians were cannibals. Because they followed a, a teacher who said, this is my body, broken for you, take it and eat. This is my blood that has been shed for you, drink. And, and so the, these Christians talked about eating the body of Jesus and drinking the blood of Jesus, and people on the outside were going, this is weird, this is really strange. Like, these, these Christians are doing all sorts of these, these wrong, they're, they're cannibals. Have people ever misunderstood you? Have people ever mischaracterized what you believe? 
I remember a few years ago, there was a person in the community where I was living who wrote a scathing Facebook post about our church and about some people in our church. Said all sorts of, of untrue things. Calling us names, you know, saying that we were what was wrong with the world, calling us intolerant, calling us bigots, and, and just you name it, they said it. And I read through it, man, like, like my, bud, my blood was boiling. I was getting fired up, and, and I was like, I know what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to craft this response, and I'm going I'm to write, and I'm, I'm going I'm to tell them why they're wrong, why, why this isn't true. And I feel like I, I, can, I, I could craft a response that would be, that would be re- received well, at least so I thought. But, but should I remind you what the 11th commandment is? Thou shalt not reply to trolls on social media, okay? <laughs> Pencil that one in at the bottom. Um, it's like the old saying, never wrestle with pigs. You both get dirty, but the pig actually enjoys it. Like, like that's the way arguments go on, on, on social media. It's best just to stay away. So one of my coworkers told me, he said, no, no, no. He said, Joel, j- just let God take care of this. And that was the best advice I could have been given. So I did, I, I didn't respond. Kept my mouth shut. Several weeks went by, I, I called up this person and I said, hey, could, could we meet for lunch? We just get together. So we got together, and I, and I asked this guy how his parents were doing because I knew his, his parents, they went to our church, and they had some health problems, and I knew that they had some financial struggles, and so I was asking how they were doing. He said, you know what, they're, they're, they're actually recovering. They're doing a lot better. And he said, you know, I heard that the church paid for some of their medical bills. He said, I, I think that's really cool. He said, I, I just want you to know that I'm, I'm sorry for some of the things that, that I wrote. I don't know if you saw that or not, but I have to admit that I was wrong. You need to listen. People are going to misunderstand you as a Christian. It's not always going to make sense to them. They're going to think what you believe and what you value is weird. And I'm telling you, the way that you reach them is by pursuing what is good. Don't get defensive. Don't spend all this time defending, defending, defending. God can defend himself. That's his job, not ours. We do it by the way that we live. It's not just what you post on social media. Did did you hear that? It's not just what you post on social media. It's the way you live that silences people who simply don't know any better. So what's our strategy? We confidently, boldly share the love of Jesus. We love irrationally, we give extravagantly, we serve people faithfully, and we do it again and again and again. And we may not reach everyone, but over time, by consistency and with integrity, we will reach some if we live in a way that rightly gets the attention of our world. The way I often tell people is this, live a life that demands explanation. Live your life in such a way that the people are like, huh? Tell me about that. They say, so you're a kid's hope mentor. Like, like you spend an hour each week with the kid. You take that time out of your schedule to do that. Like, why, why do you do that? So hold on. I, I work in the office next to you. I know that you only get two weeks of vacation a year. And, and, and you'll spend a week of your vacation getting hot and sweaty, doing back-breaking work on a mission trip in Guatemala. Like, explain that one to me. What, you, you, you give more than 10% of, of what you earn to, to God and his kingdom and his church? Like, explain that one to me. 
When you live a life that demands explanation, it gives you a platform to say, you know what? I do it because I follow a God who gave up his rights for others, to serve others, and I'm following in his footsteps. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's why I do what I do. Verse 13 continues. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is the Lord's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a, as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious to God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. The third commitment of an exile. I will submit to authority even when it's difficult. Even when it's difficult. Not just when it's convenient not just when I feel like it, not just when it's beneficial to me, but I'll do it even when it's difficult. Let's be honest. This is not a popular thing to say, is it? Especially in the world we live in right now. Say, well, well who exactly am I supposed to submit to? Well, it says in verse 13, every human authority, that's parents, teachers, bosses, coaches, government officials, church leaders, and the reasons that, that, that Peter tells us to submit are twofold. One reason is, is theological in nature. In verse 14, he says that the governors and, and these others, they are sent by him. They are, they are sent by God. So when we obey the earthly authorities, we're obeying God because God is the one who appointed the authorities. But the second reason that we submit is practical in nature. Verse 15, it says, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. In any and every society, Christians are often the target of attacks for believing in Jesus and for the countercultural way we're called to live. And so when we go out of our way to submit to authorities and to abide by the law, what we're doing is we're disarming some of the criticism that comes our way. Like, like there's enough things in the Christian life that we're going to get attacked for, like submitting to authorities, isn't, it shouldn't be one of them. Romans 13.1 says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, I know some of you are still thinking, but do, do I really need to do that? Do I have to? I mean, look at the world we live in. we got corrupt politicians. We have harmful policies. We have immoral leaders. Listen, I get it. I understand. There are many things that I don't like. I think that I pay way too much in taxes. I don't like government overreach. I don't like endless regulation. I don't like smear campaigns. There's a lot in this world that I don't like. And if you think, but, but, but it's never been like this before. How, how, can, we, how can we live in a, in a world like this and, and submit if that's what you think, you probably really don't understand the context in which Peter's writing this letter. 
Peter's writing in the first century where Christians had no say whatsoever in who their leaders were. And they faced literal physical persecution. They were jailed. They were enslaved. They were tortured. They were even killed. Now, when Peter wrote this, the Roman emperor was Claudius. Claudius was kind of a knucklehead, but the guy who came after Claudius was Nero. And Nero was, was a madman. In AD 64, probably a couple of years after Peter writes this, 10 of Rome's 14 districts burned to the ground. And many historians believe that Nero was the one who caused the fires, that, that he was the culprit. He's famously said to have played the fiddle while Rome burned to the ground. But in order to, to save his own skin, Nero blamed the Christians, said that this was all because of the Christians, and so full-scale persecution broke out. Nero was so insane that he impaled Christians and lit their bodies on fire and used them as human torches to light the city. And tradition tells us that Peter, the one who, who wrote this letter, that he refused to to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and so he was crucified, and he felt unworthy to be crucified like Jesus, so he was crucified upside down. So that is the environment in which Peter is writing this letter. That's the environment in which he tells us to submit. But still, I know some of you are saying, but, but aren't there limits to my submission? Aren't there times where I say enough is enough? What about civil disobedience? What about like Corey Ten Boom when, when she hid the, the Jews from the Nazis? What about Martin Luther King and civil rights protest and, and, and Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on the bus? Like, like, what about that? And we do see biblical examples. We, we see in, in Exodus where the Hebrew women defy Pharaoh's order to kill the Hebrew boys. They put Moses in the basket and put him down the, the Nile. We see in the book of Daniel where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to, to bow down to the statue of Baal. And they get thrown into the fiery furnace. We see in the book of Acts where the apostles refused to, to quit preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, and in Acts 5.25, their response is, we must obey God rather than man. So I think the question that we struggle with is, where do we draw the line? What's the extent of, of our submission? Well, I think that what we gather is that if submitting would cause us to commit evil, if submitting would cause us to, to directly commit sin, then like the apostles, we must obey God rather than man. John Piper says the fact that God has ordained all authority does not mean all authority should be obeyed. It is right to resist what God has appointed in order to obey what God has commanded. Now I want you to hear me, most, most of the resistance that we feel to submission in our world today deals mostly with our preferences and not with committing evil. So can we do just a, a little heart check real quick? I think for many of you, your problem with submitting to earthly authority is really a problem with submitting to authority in general. You don't like anyone telling you what to do, including God. God will never be known that way. He will only be known in absolute submission and surrender. Some of you act like you, you want to know God, but you're not willing to do what he says. God is the ultimate God, and if you don't approach him in submission and surrender, then you won't know him at all. Let's continue, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he 
When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted to him he who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The fourth commitment of an exile. I will follow in the steps of Jesus because he is worthy. Because he's worthy. Growing up, there was this Gatorade commercial that was on TV all the time. It had a little song that went along with it. Some of you might remember this. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You gotta see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move, I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. Now, for, for my generation, we all wanted to be like MJ. Contrary to popular opinion, that song was about Michael Jordan, not Michael Eaton. I wanna be like Mike, okay? I wanna be like Mike. For me, it was Michael Jordan. For you, it's probably somebody else. We all long to, to have someone to, to be like. If, if you're into design, you wanna be like Joanna Gaines. If you're into sports, you wanna be like LeBron James or Steph Curry or Patrick Mahomes or, 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 or there's some girls that wanna be like Gabby Douglas. If you're in the tech world, you want to be like Steve Jobs. If you're into innovation, you want to be like Elon Musk. If you're in business, you want to be like Mark Cuban. But Peter says you're in exile, and because you're in exile, you be like Jesus. And the phrase he uses is follow in his steps. That identifies our chief relationship to him. We are to follow him. That's the call of every disciple. Jesus told his first disciples in Matthew 4:19, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Earlier this week, Nate Plyler, our middle school and groups minister, uh, gave me a book, and there was a chapter in the book that he asked me to read, and it talked about how in, in our world today, leadership is, is in vogue. Like, everybody wants to talk about leadership. There's endless leadership conferences. You go to any bookstore, and there's section upon section of leadership books. And leadership's good. Like, I want us to be a church that raises up leaders. We need godly men and women leading in ministry here, leading in community, leading in the church. But, but what that chapter emphasized is that what we really need is to follow. It's this idea of fellowship. That, that as Christians, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And our leadership is only effective to the extent that we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. To, to follow Jesus means a life of sacrifice, a life of self-denial, a life of serving others. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to follow Jesus? My favorite TV show of all time is probably The Office, and uh, the main character in that show is Michael Scott. He's the, the regional manager. And in this one episode, they have a new salesman in the office. His name's Andy Bernard. And Andy's trying to make a, a good first impression, right? He, he, wants, he wants his new boss to, to like him. He, he's trying to spend some time with him. So he follows Michael. Andy follows Michael wherever he goes. Michael gets up from his desk to, to go into the break room to get coffee. Andy follows him in there. If Michael goes over to the copier to get, to get a piece of paper off the copier, Andy follows him in there. 
He schedules his whole weekend. He wants to do this with Michael, and he wants to do this with Michael. He gets to the point where when Michael goes to the bathroom, Andy gets up and follows him into the bathroom and just kind of stands outside the bathroom waiting for him. Most Christians don't follow Jesus that close. See, see most of us, our followership looks conditional. Like the people of Jesus' day, we want the crown, but we don't want the cross. We want to follow the Jesus of, of Palm Sunday, but not the Jesus of Good Friday. For a lot of us, we, we'd rather follow in the footsteps of comfort. We'd rather follow in the footsteps of pleasure. We'd rather follow in the footsteps of power. We'd, we'd rather follow in the footsteps of, of approval and popularity, but we're not so sure we want to follow Jesus to other places, to the cross, towards hardship, towards sacrifice. Verse 23 says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to he who judges justly. That's what you and I can expect if we follow Jesus. We're going to be mocked. We're going to be ridiculed. We're going to be insulted. And this is really what it all comes down to. So why, why should I avoid sin? Why should I pursue what is good? Why should I submit to authority? Because Jesus did. We make these commitments because Jesus was committed to us. He is the motivation. This passage ends with verse 25. For you, you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Can I ask, does this verse describe you? Does the past tense of this verse describe you? Can you say, I was like a sheep going astray? but I have returned to the overseer of my soul. Or does this verse describe what Christ is calling you to? Right now, if you were honest, would you say, I am presently, currently, at this moment, I am astray? If so, you need to know today that Christ is calling you to return to him, the overseer of your soul. He is the sheep, and we are the shepherd. Or he, we are the sheep, and he is the shepherd. He says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. As your shepherd, Jesus cares for you. He guides you. He protects you. He leads you. The question is, where the shepherd leads you, will you follow? Where he leads, will you follow?